Hey listener, this is a quick public service announcement. I never do this, but uh, you'll hear when you listen to the intro to this podcast just now that it's a bit clippy. Gavin, the producer of the show, says that's unacceptable, but Gavin greatly underestimates how difficult I find it to record intros. It's one of the things, and this is me being a little bit vulnerable with you, one of the things I found hardest to do in putting this podcast together is recording intros. So yes, it's not perfect, but I really liked how it sounded when I recorded it, and so I'm not getting rid of it. Do not adjust your set. It's not your fault, but strap in. This is an amazing show. I know you're going to enjoy it. There's so much that we can take from the world of business. I have been so privileged to spend the majority of my professional life in business. You've been listening to season two of the One-Eyed Man podcast, and we've been journeying through the social enterprise, social entrepreneurship, and social impact realms, trying to understand a little bit better what they mean, who the key players are, and how we can think about collaboration between business, public sector, and civil society in more creative ways to solve some of the world's and certainly some of South Africa's biggest problems. The reason I'm so fascinated about social impact is not in any small part due to the relationship that I have with an incredibly inspiring woman called Dr. Louise Van Rijn. Louise started an ecosystem of impact-led organizations a couple of years ago in 2008, and one of the major programs to come out of that is Partners for Possibility. I was very privileged to be part of Partners for Possibility about three or four years ago. It pairs up business leaders with school principals in underserved communities and it is just a remarkable co-mentoring, co-learning program that runs for a year and fundamentally changes perspectives and approaches to problem solving both for the business leaders themselves and for the school principals that they're a part of. It gave me great pleasure to chat to Louise for a couple of minutes in this conversation today. We covered a lot of ground. She continues to be an absolute force of change in our country and in my life. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Enjoy the show. So Louise, thank you so much for taking time out in what is an disappointingly chilly uh, Cape Town circumstance to have a discussion with me this morning about some of your experiences in the the vast world of social impact and specifically in the realm of education in South Africa. I'm sure many of the listeners will be familiar with your work to a greater or lesser degree, but for people that haven't stumbled across your work or your name before, how did you come to be in this space? What was the guiding force that landed you in this spot? So I'm a homecomer, Mike. I lived in the UK and I brought my children back to South Africa about 20 years ago and was really concerned about the future of this country. And the more I engaged with what was going on, the more I realized that if we're all going to just sit back and say, this is not my problem, you know, leave the education system to the education department, leave leadership development to some mystical force, uh, then mm. I don't think we're going to have a country. So I was really just, I'm a, I'm a business leader. My background is business leadership, um, organizational development, had lots of wonderful experiences working with blue chip companies around the world, returned and then decided I'm going to invest my knowledge, skills, experience, my IP into forging a better future for our children and our grandchildren. And that's how I am where I am today. You published your thesis on the topic of organizational design and organizational transformation. Is that correct? 
organizational culture. So it was a, it was a doctorate uh, at the Center of Management Complexity at University of Hertfordshire. And it was really a kind of exploration of how do we intervene in organizational systems to change cultures and yeah, that, that was the, the main idea behind it. And you picked probably the most complex, most insurmountably complicated ecosystem to invest that IP and energy in. You chose the education ecosystem in South Africa to change. And I believe you have. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about how you went about doing that. But why education? Why did you pick that as the starting point for your sort of impact hypothesis? So I was grappling. I had no idea where to go. And mm. um, on the 5th of May, 2009, while I was searching, the Denno King scenarios were published. And you'll remember that mm. there was this, you know, three possible futures. And so I started my impact journey with a very strong sense that walk together is the solution. This idea of cross-sector collaboration between business, government, civil society, that just, that was an idea that really got my attention. And initially, mm. I wanted that to happen. I wanted to do that in, in all the spheres. I went to Mampella Rampella and I said, you know, can we make walk together work in all, and I had this long list of areas that we needed to work in. And thank mm. goodness she said no to me because my plan was absolutely <laughs> not executable at the time. And then while I was searching, I had the opportunity to participate in a common purpose program and found myself sitting in a tiny little room in, in Cape Town at the Cape Town Library and Professor Brian O'Connell, who was at the time the Vice Chancellor of the University of the Western Cape, spoke mm. and he spoke about education being the, the heart of everything. If we're not going to fix education, then actually we're not going to have a chance to deal with any of the other crises. So it was kind of just, it was like a, you know, another, following the Damascus moment um, in, in response to Dinner King, this is a second kind mm. of just a very clear realization that this is my path. And so my commitment was 10 years. So I've invested 12 years now in specifically education. I'm, I'm stepping mm. away from my leadership role. So my focus in future, I think is going to be more around entrepreneurship, job creation, you know, the role of business in creating flourishing societies. Mm. But for the last 10 years, my, my investment has been in education specifically. And that was my commitment. I said, I'm going to invest 10 years of my professional life in education. And I've done that. And a big part of that was obviously the Partners for Possibility program, which is, you know, I've had the fortunate privilege of being a part of, I think it was now three or four years ago. Gosh, time, time has flown. What stands out in that program for people that have participated in it or for people that have, have monitored its success over the years, it's truly remarkable success, is how intentional the design of the program is. There are many ways to tackle the education quandary in South Africa, but you applied a very clear and very rational approach to going, you know, I, I can't do everything, so I must take a laser-like focus onto fixing one specific part of the issue. What was the thought process that got you to the solution that became Partners for Possibility? I think there's so much that we can take from the world of business. I have, I have been so privileged to spend the majority of my professional life in business. Mm. And so as an organizational development consultant, I've always been interested in, you know, how do you deal with this massive complexity situation. But one of the people that had a big impact on my life was uh, Jerry Sternen, who wrote the book Positive Deviance. And he tells the story 
about how they stumbled across this idea that instead of when you have sitting with a complex problem, instead of studying failure, which is what we typically do, mm. why don't you study success? So in South Africa, we have, you know, about 10 to 20% of schools are doing very well. Mm -hmm. 80 to 90% of schools are really struggling. And when you study success, when you study the 10%, you find that there's actually a really easy solution. It sounds trivial when I, I'm, as if I tri I'm trivializing, but it's not difficult. In the well-resourced, well-functioning schools, we have great principals who've been equipped for their task, and we have communities who support those great principals. Mm. In the 80%, 90% of the schools, we have principals who have not been equipped for their task. They're feeling very lonely and unsupported. So that was a kind of very clear realization that that we needed to study that. So firstly, we had to find out what is the unit of change in a complex social system. If you want to effect change, my understanding is, my belief is that you have to identify the biggest unit of change. The and most it, critical variable, yeah. And in education, it's definitely the school. So if you're going to change a school and we want to change 20,000 schools over time, You have to find out what is the most critical enabler for that change to happen. And when you study the great schools, you see that enabler is a school principal who is equipped and supported for their task. The genius of the design from there was, because I, I guess it would have been tempting at that point in time to say, okay, well, let's rally together a tier or a, a selection of high potential principals and leaders from a variety of different schools and put them through a, a leadership program. But you took it a step further and said, hold on. If we really want to affect change, we need to shift perspectives on all sides of the impact spectrum, if you like, including business and government and so on. And you designed this program that put business leaders with principals in a co-learning or co-mentoring environment rather than a, hey, I'll mentor you and show you how to do your job kind of thing, even though I've got no context uh, into it. It might have been tempting to go that route, hey, and yet you took a, a very different approach that essentially put both leaders into a position of shared comfortable discomfort together and then, and then sort of a, a journey of growing hand-in-hand uh, hand from there. I mean, that really is the stroke of genius behind the program, isn't it? You're saying all the right things, Mike, but that, let me just be clear <laughs> that it wasn't quite... You know, I have a theory of innovation, which is that the answer to how is yes, which comes from a book that Peter Block wrote. But I, I really do believe that you figure it out one step at a time. So the first thing is, I sure. think capacity building is one of our critical challenges in South Africa. And if you read the Dinner King scenarios and you read the National Development Plan, the Diagnostic Report, we have too many people in jobs in South Africa. They've not been adequately prepared for that role in public service, not so much in government, in business. In business, we've done a great job. So for me, it was around how do we build capacity in the most effective, but also cost-effective way? Because we don't have the luxury to, you know, fly all these principals from all over the country to get to business school. And actually now I have to, this is where, where I'm, I'm going to say something that might be a bit provocative, that as a business school lecturer, I'm not entirely sure that that's what the world needs right now is business schools. And I don't, I don't think it's useful 
for business leaders like you, you know, you're one of the most creative, amazing people, to go and sit in a room and be talked at. I don't think that's the model for the future. So I didn't want to do that to the principals. That's my first point. The second point is I have a very strong belief that business has a role to play, mm. that we have mm. to tap into the contribution and the assets that business have to offer. So, so business people, if you're an you know, average leader in any of the large corporates, you have been invested in. You've been sent on leadership development courses. You've attended many training courses, etc. It's a resource that as a country we have to tap into and we can't just let corporates benefit from that. So my sense was I wanted to find a way to build capacity cost effectively and efficiently and you know impactfully. I wanted to tap into the contribution of business and I felt that we needed to do this work locally. So we needed to mm. figure out a way that we could touch a principle in Uppington and Rustenburg and Pofader and Letsetele in the same way that we can. Because typically what happens is we do these things at the cities and in and around. Highly centralized. Yeah. 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 And, and I felt that we could be more clever about that. So from a capacity building program, I, I very strongly believe in the idea of 70, 20, 10. 70% of the learning happens on the job in the, you know, while you grapple with your role. 20% is this additional layer of social learning and extra support. And then 10% is formal training, like you would typically do at a business school. Mm. So we've designed a program that you can implement across the country and has been implemented in all nine provinces and is running you know, all over the country, that where the bulk of the focus is the work in the school. And for that, we have tapped into the local business community. And we've created an opportunity for them to share their knowledge and skill. And at the same time, because we needed to find a way of funding this, they are learning. Mm. So they are developing their own leadership skills, yes. which means it becomes a product that they are willing to purchase and pay for. And, and that's valuable. And so we didn't, because I was never going to be in a situation where I was going to stand with my hands stretched out asking for money and, you know, just, mm. just, I'm a business person. I'm an entrepreneur. I, I want to develop a product Needed and to then be sell the product. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're downplaying the, the success of the thing, which is so typically you. But once you got that recipe right, you could scale, right? You could begin to roll it out. Um, and, and as far as I understand, at last count, there's over a thousand schools, school principals and business leaders that have been impacted by the program. Is that correct? More than a thousand three hundred. I think we're on a thousand three hundred and forty or something. Grown at an exponential rate now. Mike, but the main thing is, again, if you know, I do think you have to design with scale in mind. And mm. so initially I was being coached and guided and advised by many people to say, Louise, just you know, 10 schools, if you could have impact in 10 schools, that would be amazing. And I'm like, guys, our pro we have 20,000 schools. I'm not going to invest in 10 schools. I want to find something that we can take, that we can take nationally and take mm. to scale. So that was why we are, have been able to do what we've been able to do. This is a, a lesson I learned in the in the journey because I mean, I mean up front when you hear that you're going to be going on a co-learning co-mentoring journey with someone for a year that sounds like a long time it sounds like a lot of time to do a lot of work but you soon realize just how short the time actually is and how much work there is to do and how difficult it is to get all of what you would like to achieve prioritized in what lands up being a relatively short period of time one of the challenges for any business leader and you know so many business leaders are 
A-type, ego-driven, results-oriented, rewards-oriented human beings. And that often works very well in a highly competitive business environment, but doesn't always translate well in an environment like a school. How did you manage the tendency and the temptation of a business leader to come into the environment, even with the very best intentions, and want to fix stuff immediately, uh, you know, fix a rapper's? There, there was a wonderful lesson in, in my journey on Partners for Possibility around just understanding first, you know, the measure twice, cut once, just just get the context, get the perspective, listen, learn, and then move towards solutions. How did you get that part of the design right? So again, we learned from failure. When I first started this journey with Ridwan Samudin, who's my partner in Kaname and Primary mm. in Grassy Park in Cape Town, because I'm, I'm trained as an organizational development consultant, I knew not to rush in and fix because that's part of your training. So I knew that I needed mm. to build the relationship. I needed to build trust. I needed to invest. We have a saying in the OD world is you have to firstly meet the client where the client is at. That's the first golden rule of OD. The second one is that, that the quality of everything you do will depend on the quality of your relationship. And so so I knew that intuitively, and that's how I started the journey with um, Ridwan at Kanamea. At the same time, I did say to about seven other of my friends, listen, I'm going to be working with Ridwan. Why don't you find yourself a principal and then we'll all do this as a group? But I didn't equip them for their task. I just kind of said, go and, you know, and what did they do? They all tried to go into the school and, you know, fix. And it didn't work. So we realized that we needed to, and and I, the language that started to kind of emerge for me is we needed to democratize organizational development. We needed to ensure that these 1,300 now leaders who would go into schools would be guided to not do the traditional thing. I mean, I remember a conversation I had with um, Nick Benedel early days from when he was still leading Gibbs. And he said, oh, Luis, I, I like the idea, but I really, you're going to have to work hard at making sure that the business leaders don't go into the schools with the intention to go and, you know, fix and because it will be experienced as patronizing and arrogant. Um, mm. So we, we knew to do that. So we've created the whole program is designed. We use Theory U from Otto Sharma and to really force the business leaders to just slow down, invest in relationships. And inevitably what we hear after a year is people say, oh, I hated that. I hated that time of slowing down and investing in the relationship. But now, a year later, I realized that if I didn't do that, we would not have seen any impact. And this is what I love. I've taken it into my organization. So we yeah. are now learning that if you want to facilitate change, you have to start with that first phase of the influencing process, which is about contracting and, and then doing discovery. And then, you know, there are phases. Peter Block calls these the preliminary phases prior to implementation. We are so implementation focused and it's not working. So we know that 90% of change projects fail because people rush into implementation before having clear social contracts before really understanding what the issue is, before making sure that all the stakeholders are part of the decision-making process. And then we get tripped up in implementation. How many projects do we know about that are three, four, five times over budget, over time, whatever, because that we've not done the, we've not been tilling the ground. And so with the schools, it was too important for us. We couldn't afford business leaders making that mistake because we also got some good guidance from the principals who say, 
we don't want these business leaders to come into school and think they have solutions for us and we just need to run the school like a business and we because actually it's it's so disrespectful and it is so patronizing. So we had to do a lot of work to contract that with the business leaders up front. And and that's why we now have, you know, there are some partnerships where the, where they've been in partnership for eight years. There's still massive mm. impact both in for the principals and the business leaders mm. as a result of having been on this journey. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of Season 1. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. Conversation as a skill is we think of it a little bit like, and I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but we think about it a little bit like running. You know, we kind of all did it growing up. So you assume that everybody can do it. And if you want to go run a race, you just get a pair of shoes and you start running the race. And you soon realize, actually, I probably need to work this and practice and develop, you know, my skill or develop the, the physical attributes I need to do better. We don't really think of conversation in the same way. And yet it really is the architecture of every relationship. And one of the things that stood out for me, and I, and I think it was predominantly during the time to think component of the learning journey, the Nancy Klein work and, and you know, the discussion around the importance of contracting is, I don't think I'm the worst conversationalist on the planet, but just how inadequately I've been prepared for difficult conversations and how important it is just to understand those basic steps. How has that impacted your building of the actual the Symphonia business and its constituents and then the, the Partners for Possibility program? Is this a big part of the architecture of the business and organization itself? Absolutely. So in organizational development, there's a term called dialogic OD. And someone looked at our work recently and he said, oh, this is an example of dialogic OD. I had no idea that this conversation developed. But I grew up in, in the time of dialogue and conversation as a key organizational process. When I decided where to do my doctorate thesis, I was very keen to do the Bill Isaacs dialogue. Sorry, when I did, when decided which, where I was going to do my doctorate. And then Patricia Shaw had just published a book about changing conversations in organizations. And she was one of the people at the Center of Management and Complexity. So it became, I mean, I spent four years studying the process of conversation and storytelling and narrative and how that changed how we contribute in, in, to organizations and how it, you know, the impact that conversations and story have on, on our organizational life. So for me, organization is the core organizational process. The question that I was grappling with is how do we help other people to get a handle on that without putting them through a four-year organizational development degree? And, you know, Nancy Klein's work is an amazing kind of entry point into that. And then Peter Block's work, because I, I think he's one of the most, you know, powerful contributors to this work. So that's what what I chose. I just said, who are the two people that had the most impact on my my life as an organizational development consultant? And how do we make that accessible to to these people who's going to lead change across the country? Would those two pieces of of material be a great starting point for somebody listening to the show and going, hey, I'm actually quite interested in that. 
architecture of conversation thing. Where would you start them off? What are the what are the basic building blocks of if you're if you're you're the gateway drugs to <laughs> to yeah. better conversation? Yeah. So I would actually I would start a bit before that. So in the kind of taking that metaphor a bit further, um, the art of possibility. Ben and Rosander's book, in my mind, mm. is is the the starting point for just starting about, point. Just about everything that we want to do in the world. I, I was talking about the book the other day and I said, I thought this is the most important book in the world. And someone said, the Bible is more important. So I'm kind of conceding on that. Maybe the Bible is more important, but well, we can have that debate. We can have that debate. Um, we can, <laughs> we can actually, but anyway, so, um, but then, then Nancy Klein's two books. So her first book was Time to Think. The one, the, the second one is More Time to Think. And then obviously Patricia Shaw's book for those people who are really interested in going deeper. And there's so many books on dialogue. The, the kind of ma- main idea behind all of this is that, and this is a Peter Block, this doesn't come from Nancy or, or the Zanders. Peter Block said that the delivery vehicle of my expertise is my humanity. So, so mm. that's, that's at the heart of it. So, it depends on how we make each other feel and it depends on whether the way in which we show up makes the other person feel respected and and then able to contribute. And the neuroscience, I'm, I'm a big neuroscience fan, the neuroscience is clear. When people feel respected, supported, loved, appreciated, all those things, their prefrontal cortex is able to work. When they feel criticized, belittled, challenged, judged, all those things, or not maybe challenged, but judged, their limbic system is in charge and it's impossible for them to think creatively. So if I want to create an organization where people bring their best selves to work, I need to know this stuff and I need to learn how to communicate with people in a way that makes them feel valued and respected. So on the topic of best selves, I want to take a little bit of a sideways trajectory. You know, what are the costs of building something of the scale and significance of Partners for Possibility is is that it does demand an enormous amount of self, an enormous amount of sacrifice, an enormous amount of effort. And you know, I'm one of the people that's very grateful for the sacrifices that I know you've made over the years in, you know, in the in the pursuit of that impact. But one of the other things that also happens when you create something of significance is that it eventually gets bigger than you. And we all want that to happen. We all want the organization or the business or the product to exceed our own, if you like, for lack of a better word, brand. Um, and that's a moment of success, right? When it is more recognizable, more well-known, more loved than, I guess, the, the originator of the thing. But one of the challenges is, is as it grows, we need to find ways to extricate ourselves from that. And you mentioned right up front that you're going through the journey of building the next chapter of your your impact life. What has that been like, Louise? What has it been like? (laughs) (laughs) We didn't contract Um, for this, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) True. Has has that been harder than you imagined or easier than you imagined? Oh, my goodness. You can just say yes or no. No, no, I'll tell you. So so (laughs) when I started to – so I had this kind of realization that firstly I needed to – I needed to extricate me, myself out of it because of the cost to me personally, to my family. It, it was kind of all on, it, it became all consuming and I had, you know, I, I was, I became so fixated on this work that I do feel I have more to give to the world than just partners possibility. But while I was leading partners possibility, it was all consuming. So I knew I needed to find a way to extricate myself. And yet 
Uh, sorry, and then when I started to talk to people about it, they all said, Louise, this is the most difficult thing you're ever going to do in your life is to leave the organization you founded. And, and I was kind of, I heard that, you know, cognitively I, I heard it, but I didn't, it, it didn't land uh, in me. And so I knew 2010 was going to be the, oh, sorry, 2020 was going to be the hard year. It was going to be the year that we were going to, you know, find my, my successor and that successor was mm -hmm. going to step. And then COVID hit. Of course. <laughs> it was like it became, you know, a hundred times worse. Um, yeah, life's, but, life's what happens when you're making plans. Hey? Absolutely. But anyway, my successor has has taken over from the 1st of August. Uh, there's no doubt that August was one of the most difficult months of my life. It was so hard for me to think, you know, there's my, my little nest with all of my mates who are, that I've built and I've kind of convened and they've been attracted to the organization. And now I'm, you know, I've kind of, I made the decision to leave, but it feels as if I've been kicked out of the nest and it's tough. Mm, but, mm. um, but I can, you know, like, and I had to go through a, through a very serious grieving process. I, I, you know, I've yeah. been confronted with grief in a way that I've never had to deal with. I'm starting to see the, the end, the light at the end of the tunnel. And I do have a sense that I'm going to be building on everything I've learned through these 12 years of Symphony of South Africa and Partners of Possibility. And I'm very excited about what might be possible and, and, and the kind of, you know, the opportunities that might arise when you're not so consumed, when you so, anybody, any social mm. entrepreneur will say to you, it, it doesn't just take a hundred percent of your life. You know, it's 150% of your life. It just absolutely consumes you. So when you step out of it, then you can start to see more clearly and engage in, in different kind of conversations that will, hopefully lead to something interesting going forward. But it's also, I mean, one of, you have to be willing to, I stepped out without any idea what the future looks like. I have, you know, there are a mm. few pieces of building blocks in what, that I'm clear that's going to happen, but, you know, I'm not leaving to go to another job or I'm leaving to continue to be a social entrepreneur and to continue to have impact and to continue to draw on everything I've done, which is what social entrepreneurs do. So who knows? We don't know. So, you know, I can empathize, right? Because we left our organizations that we'd been in for similar periods of time. I mean, mine is incomparable in its scale to yours. And I don't think I worked nearly as hard as you did. <laughs> but I do feel that grieving process. I do feel that suddenly being on the outside looking in is a very difficult emotion to describe. And I don't know if you can identify with this, but I, I remember sort of you know, during the latter parts of my journey at Cerebra, fantasizing about all the things that I was going to do when I left and had the freedom to, you know, the, the optionality of being unburdened by this thing that, <laughs> that had been my sole focus for 13 years. And then I suddenly had all that freedom and all that space. And I realized that optionality is a curse. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm very confident in the leadership that's taken over at Cerebra and the business continues to do extremely well. And, and that's a testament to the management team that's in place there. So that was easier for me, I think, to let go of. But what's been really difficult for me is every time somebody asks me the what next question and I hate having to answer, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's something to do with this and I kind of like this over here and this looks pretty good. But I found that really difficult. In fact, I found that depressing at times. How have you thought about next in a, in a rational and and systematic way asking for a friend obviously <laughs> yeah, exactly so, so i don't think rationality is i mean that's just not an option this is a very emotional process it's a very human process i think it's a very 
it's a humanizing process as well. I do think, I think one of the big challenges with the world that we used to live in, I think COVID has had a you know big shakeup, is, is the idea that leaders have to know and should be certain. Because I mm. just think, I think that's a complete nonsense. I, I don't think mm. that's what the world needs from us. I think the less, the more leaders are willing to say, I don't know, but I'm committed to figure it out with you one step at a time. That's when we're going to create you know, solutions to the world's difficult challenges. And certainly that was my, I had no idea how to build the Symphonia business. I had no idea how to do partners possibility. And, and I kind of really realized that it was a, you know, one moment at a time, one step at a time, one mistake at a time process. So um, I'll never forget there was a, there was a day, I can't remember exactly what happened, but something happened and I was with Peter Block and he looked at me and he said, oh, Louise, this might well be the authentic end to certainty because he had always experienced me as quite certain. I think this process that you and I have been through is definitely a process that will, that will, that will stop us from ever falling into that trap of certainty again. So that's the mm. one thing. The other thing is I am very privileged to have had access to some of the most amazing thought leaders. But one of the thought leaders mm. that have really touched me is a woman called Nilifan Merchant who wrote the book Onlyness. Mm. And onlyness is around being very clear around what is the song that only you can sing? What is the story that only you can write? So I'm very interested in that idea that each of us have a story that only only me or only you can write or sing a song that only us can sing. And then I've just recently finished reading Essentialism. And I think there's something about that. There's something about really being clear about that essence. What is my essence, your essence? And, um, and so the options have become less noisy, noise creating for mm. me, because there's, there's some essential ideas that, that I'm interested to pursue in this next half of my life. Who knows where that will go? But, it, but it, I mean, you know, so, so those building blocks are clear and now it's about creating the business around it. Louise, just one final thought. I mean, you, you're obviously very tuned into the leadership landscape in South Africa and the impact it has on all of us as we make big decisions about the future of the country and, and economic decisions and so on. I care deeply about that as well. And I think as I've grown more exposed to the leadership space, I've realized just how critical even the smallest decisions can be in their ripple effect on all sorts of communities and stakeholders in the mix, especially when we talk about decisions that are made in terms of policy at the highest level. We've been through a very difficult time as a country uh, and continue to be in the middle of it. And I think we've realized, I don't know if you feel the same thing that I do, but I feel further and further and further away from our policymakers than ever before. I feel like I'm on a different planet to them. You know, men are from Venus, politicians are from Mars vibes. Um, if you had the ear of our most senior politicians for, for an hour, let's say this week, what would you ask of them right now? So I th I'm going to disappoint you because actually I've lost all my faith in politicians and policymakers as well. I think the future of the world is going to be created by citizens who will. And mm. when I'm what I mean by citizens, it's people who are no longer waiting for people at the top to make the right decision. And if you think of all of the great endeavors in the world came about because citizens, people decided this is an issue that I want to engage with. And they've kind of did it completely despite the politicians. Now, if, if we could have, you know, Cyril's ear and 
and his team's ear, we would ask for them to create, a, in the same way that we would in business, for the leadership to create an enabling environment for citizens to make their best contribution. Mm. Many years ago, I read a book that Gary Hamill wrote, and it had a massive impact on me. And, and in the book, he says, most organizations are no longer fit for human life. And I mean, the the fact is that what our politicians are creating is a world that's not fit for human life. So what if we had to co-create? What if we had to get business, government, civil society to work together? What if collaboration and working together became the core currency for us? And we really tapped into the gifts and the contributions that each of these sectors can provide. And we were clear about, I mean, I don't know when was the last time that you read that beautiful vision as articulated in the South Africa's Vision 2030. I don't think we have needed another vision, but we need to have that vision clearly in front of us and then say, and how are we going to co-create this and how are we going to work together in a way that will create a better future for our children and our grandchildren? If I had a dream, that would be my dream, that we could get the leadership of this country to recognize that there are amazing people with amazing gifts and we just need to create a space for them to do that work. What, what is hard for me is, you know, I've been mobilizing active citizenship and we've touched a million people and we've had, and we, we're working so frugally to save 10 rand here and, and, and mobilize 100 rand here and then to see the level of the corruption and to see how, mm. you know, things are just being squandered. Wastage. That's really hard for us. And it, I get as depressed as you do. And I have to constantly go back and say, well, how can I remain focused on South Africa alive with possibility because I'm so depressed about what's happening. But that's the only chance we have is for us to, for us as citizens and, and creative, innovative leaders to have our eyes on that vision and just in every conversation that we have and every interaction we have to just be committed to mobilize people to achieve that vision with us. And I'm reading another book around uh, dealing without authority. Um, and it's that whole thing that each of us, we have team members who are not part of our organizations, but they are part of our team. Mm. And, and you and I are part of a number of communities where we are, we have team members and we need to figure out ways that we can work together to create this future in the way that, you know, I've seen what happens when I've got a business leader and principal working together in Let's say Tele and mobilizing the local community with a vision for what's possible in that community. Magical things happen. Yeah, every one of those types of conversations is a tiny step in the right direction. You know, if anything else is rigorous conversation and debate and discussion are antidotes to some of the oppressive <laughs> sometimes um, circumstances that we find ourselves in. Louise, this conversation has been a gift. You are a gift. Thank you so much again on behalf of everybody, every one of those million lives that you have to a greater or lesser degree impacted for the efforts, for the sacrifices for the time that you've put in. Uh, we're all very excited to see what you're going to create next. I know I hate it when people say that, but we're all very excited to, to see it. And I just, I'm very grateful for your time today. You are a dear friend and I'm very lucky to have you in my life. So thank you for taking the time to chat to me. Thanks, Mike. And I just, I have to put this on record that I'm hoping some of that co-creation is gonna happen with you. So I'm looking forward to see where that might all end up. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. Certainly, looking forward to it. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live 
in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit mikestopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.